It's the 40s. It's the middle of World War II. There's new types of technologies being fielded left and right from all sides that were involved in that conflict. And America needed to step up their game. And they had to do it quickly. Getting pulled into the war, 1941, uh, 42, it was really important to get ahead and get ahead quickly. And I think that the Skunk Works were part of, you know, America's answer to that. Getting out there and developing aircraft that, you know, had never been flown before, platforms that had never been thought possible before, getting that edge and, and keeping ahead of that edge, I mean, tied into that inherently is rapid prototyping. Aircraft development begins with an idea, conceptual design sketches, and eventually physical models of that idea. But none of these are things you can actually fly. Rapid prototyping is the phase of aircraft development where engineers take all those sketches and models representing hours of conceptual thought and make them a reality. Tom Kwasniak is a project engineer here at Skunk Works. The majority of his day is spent solving engineering problems on the factory floor. So I went to school for aerospace engineering at Georgia Tech. Even growing up, I was basically interested in two things. It was airplanes and race cars. You know, when I went to college, it was tough to kind of work on airplanes on the side. So I was on the Formula SAE team, which is an open wheel race team. You know, that was a lot more accessible to me than, than working on airplanes at the time. And that was really where I learned that I liked being on the manufacturing end of things. You know, something about being out on the floor and working with the product directly, that was where I wanted to spend all my time when I was on the formula team. You know, we had a little design studio kind of upstairs in our shop. All the jigs and equipment and machinery were downstairs, and I just always found myself downstairs as opposed to, you know, up in the office working on CAD. And I guess that sort of continued on to, you know, my professional career. Most traditional design models follow a linear process of analysis, design, development, implementation, and finally evaluation. But rapid prototyping isn't so linear. Think back to a time when you were trying to make something new work. Maybe you designed and built a wooden car for a Pinewood Derby. Or you crafted your own design for a Halloween costume. Was the process linear or was it more fluid? Did you strictly follow the concept or did you make changes to your design on the fly after seeing the realities of the build process? In rapid prototyping, the goal is to concurrently analyze, design, and develop the product while building, continuously reevaluating the design as more information is available. This nonlinear approach is what makes rapid prototyping rapid because engineers are solving problems as they build the product rather than solving everything before building starts. This approach is significantly more difficult to execute, but it's often the only way to go when schedule is of the utmost importance. You know, that's an inherent part of the Skunk Works philosophy is, you know, programs that start as, you know, six folks working in a broom closet saying, hey, I think I can make this work and, you know, then testing and developing that in increasing increments until finally you're, 
riveting together product on a floor, putting together some kind of platform or some kind of a new technology that's never been seen before. I guess I consider that I have a, a somewhat of a short attention span when it comes to the projects I like to work. So the Skunk Works is well suited for me because I like the ability to go in and develop a new product every two to three years. You might recognize Mike Swanson from previous episodes. Mike is the ADP chief engineer and has a lot of experience rapidly prototyping secret aircraft. I guess in a purest sense, I mean, prototyping in general goes back to the the right flyer. I mean, the early concepts in, in aviation flight, I mean, those were essentially technology demonstrators, you know, trying to build a full-scale flying machine that a man could operate, but there was no precedence for doing some of the things they were doing. So coming up with the whole, you know, warp wing concept and getting the airfoil shapes right so you could have the lift that you needed and all the controllability. Just as the Wright brothers designed and developed their Wright Flyer, proving air travel is possible, Skunk Works engineers design and develop future technologies, proving that what seems impossible is possible. Prototyping a lot of times is uh, defined as the, the first article of a production run, you know, maybe doesn't have all the capabilities, but it can also be a a technology demonstrator that really isn't intended to go into production, but you're doing something to mature a technology or understand how it's going to operate in a, you know, flight environment. Uh, Sometimes prototypes are used for kind of political reasons, you know, kind of the, the if you build it, they will come sort of mentality that you got to have something actually built and flying before you can get enough customer interest to actually go pursue a program and develop it into production. And so the rapid prototyping is really goes hand in hand where because you're trying to mature capabilities, technologies, demonstrate a new system, depending on what that prototype's function is, you want to invest the minimum amount of money, the minimum amount of time, the minimum amount of resources into that effort. And so we tend to try to do it as rapidly as possible. Rapid prototyping is just essentially trying to prove you can do something. Let's say you're just trying to prove that a process works. I mean, that could be a form of rapid prototyping. That kind of trial and error, if you will, and that kind of process development it is a form of rapid prototyping kind of at the, at the smallest scale, but it can go... You know, all the way up to a, a full platform of some kind, you know, an entire air vehicle. You're going into unknown territory with a, maybe a new design or a new concept, and you want to see how it's going to work. And that's, that's how, like, the, the X series of aircraft got started. Back in the, the late 40s, early 50s, NASA developed the X-Plane series, so the X-1, X-2, X-3. Uh, you know, we're up to, like, in the 50s at least by this point. But, but those initial X-Planes were all about get, getting better understanding and operating in supersonic environments. You know, the X-1 was the first aircraft to, you know, break the sound barrier with Chuck Yeager. And then beyond that, it was like, how can we push that boundary further? How can we go to Mach 2? 
what kind of controllability do we have? You know, what can we do to improve our efficiencies? And then, so yeah, X-planes are definitely, in my mind, a, a category of prototypes, more geared towards that technology demonstration, pushing boundaries, as opposed to maybe taking something that you're going to put into production later. It doesn't necessarily have to be a new vehicle. It could be an adaptation or modification of an existing vehicle. We've been working on, over the last several years, automatic ground collision avoidance system, auto GCAS, sort of autonomous control algorithm on your vehicle that in case a pilot blacked out during training or he got fixated on a target when he was doing like a strafing run, you know, in a lot of cases, they would run into the terrain or, you know, lose control and crash the, the vehicle. And we've lost several pilots over the you know last decades or more in that kind of condition. And so, you know, the Skunk Works, you know, started working on algorithms that would essentially take over control of the vehicle for a short period of time if it sensed that the pilot was going to get in that situation where he was going to impact terrain. And so we, we actually prototyped it at Edwards Air Force Base and on an F-16, demonstrated the capability, used that as kind of a marketing tool to convince the, the Air Force of the, you know, the benefits of this capability, show that it actually worked and, and it didn't adversely affect the pilot's ability to perform his mission because you don't want this thing taking over in, in critical times. But, but it has now been adopted on the F-16. They're incorporating in the F-22, the F-35. And it's been credited with at least saving... I want to say at least seven or eight pilots' lives since it's been, you know, implemented on the F-16. So, the cool thing about that is it's really a pure software implementation. It's using the existing terrain databases on the F-16. It's using the sensors, the control system, everything that already exists there. So it's a fairly easy retrofit to existing uh, aircraft. In a rapid prototyping world, you have to go with smart people who understand the problem, working together to solve for the greater good. This is Irene Helley, the U2 program director. What we do at the Skunk Works, it means really lowering the burden of the layers of uh, approvals and, and forms and processes, and you just get to the heart of how can we pull this thing together in the shortest amount of time possible. Here in the Skunk Works, sometimes that means making sure that the engineers are co-located with the manufacturing team. We'll sit on the same ground plane, we'll sit in the same room, and we'll work together. And if something pops up in the manufacturing world, the engineers, the designer, the guy that originated or created this design is right there to help fix the problem alongside. And everyone has a sense of obligation, but also a sense of authority and responsibility. So here it doesn't matter if you're a budding engineer or somebody who's been around for a long time. If you're willing to take the risk and you're willing to do a good job and devote yourself to the problem-solving techniques, that's what matters. It was probably just my first couple of months here at the Skunk Works, and I had a manager that asked me to go solve a problem. They had this weird hinge that they wanted to develop, and it was in a really close enclosed area, and there were a lot of constraints uh, in the design of it. And he said, just, just go fiddle with this and see what you can come up with. Well, I worked on it for about a day or two, and I came back to my manager, and I said, hey, I, I think I have a solution here. And I showed it to him, and his face kind of contorted, and he came and gave me this weird look, and he goes, I have never seen a design like that before. And then he mulled over it for a bit, and he goes, you know what? 
that totally works. That's a great idea. And we rolled with it. And that's one of the things about being in an environment that allows you to be creative is that just because we've always done it that way before isn't always the right answer. We're constantly faced with new constraints and, and new things that we have to work around. And so as a young engineer, it's really valued because you are unhampered by, oh, well, that's the way we used to do it. I think that's why we have such a great value and emphasis on bringing in young engineers and people even maybe from outside of the traditional industry to help us through some of our greatest challenges because we really value the diversity of thought and just the diversity of background and how you shaped your experiences because that will pour into new solutions that haven't been considered that way before. It's about solving problems, and it's not about trying to be perfect up front. It's about being prepared to just solve the problems as they come to, again, keep moving that product along. For me, as a project engineer, I think it's just about having enough small understanding of a lot of things to know who to contact to solve the problem. Kind of like being a detective that also just knows who to connect who with. Sean Parsons has been with the Skunk Works just over a year. Sean is a project engineer who was asked to lead a huge project only a few months into her career. That's what's exciting about working here. It's not just, oh, I'm in doing this, I'm doing this. The workflow is everybody's just kind of focused on building a product and a thing. And of course, you have your specialties that you're in charge of, but really everybody is just doing what they can. So the workflow is a little chaotic, but it's a productive chaotic because everybody's just continually, you know, moving this product along. I told my manager I was coming to do this, and now he's going to listen and be like, oh, she, they, she just told everybody that we have chaos over here at the Skunk Works. No, Productive chaos. <laughs> Everything can be an experience, so it's important to have really well-rounded experiences. So for me, my first internship was not in aerospace. I actually did a uh, manufacturing internship experience for GE with like downhole oil well equipment because I'm from Oklahoma and it's all oil and gas, you know? Um, so for me, it's not, I think it's about just finding experiences where you can really like evolve yourself and be a well-rounded engineer, not just like, oh, I need to get research that's aerospace related or chemical engineering um, related, but just finding opportunities anywhere you can to put your hands on stuff. And I think that's really, really important because the school is already giving you the, the theoretical, the academic building blocks. So it's really important, I think, to focus even more on finding like the physical building blocks because you're going to need them, especially if you're going to build something, which is what we do here. The most important part is to really be able to see a problem from multiple different points of views and different lenses. I know as for me, I have a, a degree in mechanical engineering and I see things from a very structural perspective. The best part about problem solving and working in this diverse environment is being able to sit down and look at a problem from different angles and try to figure out the best way to attack a problem and make things work. For this one program we were on, we had to figure out a way to manufacture something in the most cost-effective way, but making sure it met all the requirements and was able to integrate with all the other needs from signature management to material to supportability and maintainability once this airplane made it out onto the field. And so once you actually look at a problem and realize the complexity of it all and that you can't answer the question by yourself, you recognize the value of teamwork and working with others who are also experts in their field. And that there's so much to learn about, and that's what keeps the job really exciting. 
And so it is really an expectation that while you're there representing your specific discipline, you're providing insight to the other disciplines to help understand where you're coming from while absorbing, you know, the needs and requirements from those other folks as well. There's a wide variety of the types of programs that we have here. It usually starts out with first understanding what the customer need is. Keeping that at the, at the forefront of our minds as we go into the design process, it does you no good to design an elaborate airplane that may be beautiful, that may fly perfectly, but if it doesn't meet the mission requirements, it really doesn't matter. We have a whole team of conceptual designers, and these are folks who kind of conceptualize what the end result should look like. They're uninhibited by the realities of, uh, of how hard something might be to do or figure out or, or understand or manufacture. And their purpose is just to help us kind of spread our wings and think outside of the box that we place ourselves in. So we always start with something like that that is just boundless and limitless. And then we start to understand, okay, how can we make this a reality? And that's the fun part of the process. From there, uh, we work with configurators to understand the big blocks. How do we put this stuff together? What capabilities does the platform, the airplane, the whatever it is have to have in order to make it work? And then you start adding more fidelity to the design by bringing in the right subject matter experts from subsystems to the vehicle, to analysts, to uh, materials people, to manufacturing folks. And starting with day one, you have to include kind of that cradle to grave forethought of how this is all going to come together. And what you want to make sure is that you stay connected through the whole process. So as you complete the design process and you go through reviews, you make sure that the people who are out there who will be actually building and prototyping this vehicle are sitting there with the engineers to ensure that they're not making any silly decisions. They're not making designs that only look good in the 3D environment of the computer, but when it comes into real life, hey, there's no way for a mechanic to get their hand in there and turn that tight little screw. So it's, it's working through all the details of how do you practically pull something like this together. Then when we hit the manufacturing floor, it's ensuring that those designers are still available to the people building it. Because there will be problems. You won't be able to understand and know all of the run-ins that you're going to have later on. So ensuring that you maintain open communication. And so as you go through the finishing touches of manufacturing, you're thinking about testing. How are you going to verify all the requirements? How are you going to test and make sure that the airplane will perform as intended and that it'll be safe and that it'll accomplish its mission? And from that, that's a partnership with the customer. And from there, you go straight through to deployment of the asset. And so there's a lot of steps involved in a quick prototyping organization, but a lot of it has to do with ensuring that you're working across disciplines every step of the way. need to move fast if you want to prove a prototype can work with the current technology. It doesn't matter whether you're working, again, on airplanes or consumer products or whatever else. There's going to be a window over which your product is useful. Nothing is useful forever necessarily except for, you know, maybe like bricks or something, right? But <laughs> most products have a optimal window over which they're, they're going to be useful when you're on that leading edge of technology, technology is, is constantly accelerating and developing. And unless you can move 
as quickly as the technology is developing, you're always going to be kind of chasing something that's, that's just ahead of you. So let's say, you know, I want to build a new airplane today. You take the current state of the art in terms of the designs and the characteristics that you want that airplane to have, the manufacturing processes that currently exist, you know, your capabilities of all your, you know, software and, and subcomponents and things that can go in there, and you package them all together. You know, if it takes you, you know, 10 years to get that prototype out there, all the parts that you're using and all the technologies that you're using are going to be 10 years old. A key tenet of uh, rapid prototyping is don't invent what you, you don't have to on the program. I mean, usually we're, what we're trying to do with these prototypes is hard enough in terms of whether it's the environment they're operating in or the technologies we're trying to integrate. And so we will absolutely beg, borrow, and steal components, subsystems, hardware from wherever we possibly can. Good examples are like the more complicated systems like the landing gear. The X-55 Advanced Composite Cargo Aircraft is probably a good example, a recent one that I spent a lot of time working on. You know, the whole technology and a thing we were trying to demonstrate on that program was the use of advanced uh, manufacturing techniques and composite materials to significantly reduce the amount of time it takes to fabricate and assemble a large aircraft. It, there was no, never any intention to put that thing into production. It really was just to demonstrate that those technologies. We really didn't want to spend money developing new fuel systems, landing gear, engines. And so we, on that project, I think we, we kind of took it to an extreme where we took an existing Dornier 328 regional jet, a commercial jet, and we took the wing, and inside the wing was the fuel systems, the engines, as well as the landing gear and a lot of the, and the, basically the cockpit off of that jet, and then reassembled it with our brand new composite fuselage and vertical tail. And so, you know, it's kind of a novel way of, because we were basically given two years and $50 million to build an aircraft that could carry cargo pallets equivalent to like a C-130, you know, at least, you know, C-130 would carry four, we could carry two, but it was a large, like a 30,000 pound aircraft. And the only way that you could, we could see to get the cost down to less than $50 million was to reintegrate a lot of existing systems and hardware and focus all of our our energy and effort on the stuff that we absolutely had to develop from scratch. You know, you can only go so far in like a wind tunnel or through computer simulations and modeling. At some point, you need to be able to scale it up, really demonstrate does it work in flight or not, If in, in what are the issues that we have when we actually get in that, that environment. I'm not working at Loboom, but it's a great example to talk about because it's public um, and anyone listening can go learn all about Quest, our Loboom technology demonstration. We have like simulated the fact that like it's not making a low boom or that it's coming together, but s- saying you've done it in a simulation is not the same thing as doing it in a first flight and proving it out. So I think that's the important part is it gives confidence and like a real life article to the achievement. And plus, it's you know it's going to be way more fun to watch LVFD fly off than it is to just like watch it simulated flying on your computer screen. So.
Yeah, I mean, if you kind of think about the birth of aviation and the Wright brothers, right, think of how many different ways they tried to solve that one problem. There were a lot of failures early on before things really actually literally took flight. And we see that on the on the big scale. We also see it on the small scale here. There was a project I worked on a while ago where we were trying to figure out a new way to use these different actuators, right? We were trying to waterproof them. And there's a bunch of different engineers that all sat around in a room and we were trying to model this. We were trying to do analysis on this. We were trying to figure out the nth degree of what we could do with this actuator, push it to its limit, and then and be able to predict it. But really you know, all this time we spent doing all this analysis and spreadsheeting and modeling, if we had just taken it to the field and tried it out a few different times, we would have saved that much more time, collected a whole lot more data, and been able to learn about physically how this thing works in the real world. I think sometimes we tend to paralyze ourselves with the analysis of it all, and we kind of jokingly call it paralysis by analysis. We want to get to the 100% solution where everything is right and you know exactly what the answer is going to be and you think you can't make a, a mistake at all. But the more important thing to do is just to be willing to fail a little bit, fail early and fail often. Skunkworks offers two facilities for employees to experiment, tinker, and prototype. They're affectionately called the Innovation Garage and the Swift Lab. Yeah, so the Swift Lab is uh, more of like a mission systems and software-based lab, and the Innovation Garage is more of like your mechanical lab. So the Innovation Garage is an area that we have for folks to go and just try different things, whether it's for work, for home, for just an opportunity to go think about something or try to put it into reality. Early on when we first opened the Innovation Garage, we had a junior engineer working with a senior engineer, and they were developing a text fixture. So the junior engineer basically completed the design and said to the senior engineer, hey, will you come just spot check what I did? I think I'm good here. And the senior engineer came over, you know, turned the model around the computer a bit and said, you know, it does. It looks, this is a really good design, but something about it just doesn't seem right. I can't put my finger on it, but, you know, I've been doing this for years and I, I, just something looks a little funny here. Well, the innovation graduate just opened, and so the junior engineer said, well, why don't we go down and, and test it out? Let's go build this thing. So they did. They built a small-scale version of this. They 3D printed it. You know, it took maybe an hour or so of their time, and they started to put it together. Well, they soon realized that the way the hinges were designed, it was just off by just a fraction, something you'd never even see when you were playing with a 3D model on the computer. But as they built the scaled model, it became very clear what the problem was. Well, they ended up saving the program tons of money and a ton of cost and time and schedule by finding this one little misalignment that they went and fixed on the computer very easily before moving into the final product. That's what rapid prototyping is all about. Fail early, fail often. Get in there, try it out, and see if it works before you actually go on to the big developmental program. And so the Innovation Garage, the Swift Lab, those are areas for us to play. It's like a sandbox. It's for you to just explore the different ways that you might be able to make something work better or to find out ways that it might not work at all and give yourself the opportunity and grace to try again. Rapid prototyping isn't only about the products but also the factories in which the products are built. The Skunk Works is migrating towards connected systems and tools that enable us to be efficient in the physical space just as much as we are now in the digital space with virtual prototyping and virtual environments. This is Travis Reed, the director of ADP Production Operations Special Projects for the Skunk Works. The future factories will harness the capabilities of 
automation, uh, integration of robotic systems and solutions, um, precision and uh, advanced metrology and other various applications to support future build. So it'll be a much different factory in the regard of how data flows and how systems interoperate with each other. It allow downstream and you know many years from now when that system's deployed, uh, you'll be able to look back and understand what what that uh, air vehicle looked like when it left the factory floor and what it looks like today. So data will be really powerful characterizing the the environment that the aircraft was produced in and what it ultimately became and then ultimately throughout its lifetime how the system is sustained and maintained uh, digital thread will allow the operators to really understand the performance of their product and understand as issues arise what to do to resolve it and how to how to proceed in in various situations It's not about how amazing your decisions were up front. It's about how you recover from the areas where you you had to take a risk or you had to, you know, make a choice that was maybe not the greatest choice, but it was better to make a choice than have none at all. Ultimately, you know, none of that matters when you're down at that end point and you want to go put the product together and get it tested. You know, all those issues that you had earlier, they're all behind you and you just need to figure out how to recover and get your your product rolled out as fast as you can. The Skunk Works has done exactly that with all the pain involved multiple times. And, you know, the rose-colored glasses of history, I can't imagine that they didn't have similar problems on prototypes back in the Kelly Johnson era, you know, working on Oxcart or working on uh, Have Blue. You know, looking back on them, they're all resounding successes, but they're all very painful while you're doing it, which is, you know, quite frankly, part of the fun, right? Th- that's all those challenges that you run into in, in getting a rapid prototype platform fielded. You know, that those are the things you remember. You remember when you see the product come online for the first time you remember when you know you maybe when you won the proposal you remember when you you see it fly away and those are the ones that you know you'll see with rose-colored glasses forever what you also remember is all the most painful things that happened while that was occurring but those things never seem to make it into you know the the overall narrative of you know the successful program right um, but that, that's what makes a job fun is, is solving those particular problems and, and doing something that is really difficult, you know, with a team and ultimately yielding a product at the end that, you know, everyone can be proud of and that you can take out there and prove something with. Inside Skunk Works is created in Palmdale, California, and Fort Worth, Texas. Stay tuned for words of wisdom from Irene Helley. To see photos of engineers from this episode, check out our show notes at LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunk Works. To all our listeners, thank you for a great season.
there's this common misconception that in order to be an engineer, you have to be really good at science or math. And while that's helpful, I think what's more important to consider is do you like to problem solve? Do you like to get in on difficult problems, difficult situations, tear them apart, and figure out how things work and how to make them better? And so for folks who are thinking or even contemplating about engineering as a career choice or as a major in college, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, do you enjoy problem solving? Do you enjoy getting into the nitty gritty of how things work and how to understand ways to make things better? And that's really at the heart of engineering. The math and the science and the textbook stuff, that just comes with extra hard work. But really, the best advice I have is if you're thinking about engineering, think about what you like to do and pour your heart into it. First of all, there's no right major. Sure, an engineering degree definitely helps, but I'll say some of the leading leaders in our organization have majored or gone to school for something completely different than the discipline they now either lead or host or are involved with. So, you know, one of the leading experts in mission systems in the Skunk Works actually has a chemical engineering degree. You'd never make that leap, right, if you were going through college. You know, I used to interview a lot of people who uh, were looking to start their career at the Skunk Works. One of my favorite questions to ask is, what do you do outside of school? So we all engineers, we love school. We love doing problem sets. I'm sure that's, <laughs> that's common amongst a lot of engineers is we like to do the textbook stuff. But outside of the classroom, what do you do? Do you like to tinker around with your car at home? Are you making upgrades to, you know, networks and things like that that you work out on home? Maybe you're building your own computer or maybe you're doing something else. But when you come to the Skunk Works, we're looking for someone who's more than just book smarts. It's more than about getting the 4.0 GPA. Well, what we're really looking for is somebody that we call skunky, someone with vision, someone who likes to solve hard problems, someone who's passionate about the work that they do, and someone that isn't an engineer just in the classroom, but is an engineer in life. There are some classics in the, in the history of aviation that are worthy of reviewing and worthy of understanding. And so if you're interested in becoming a skunk someday, I'd say step one, go back and look at some of your favorite airplanes. What made them so amazing? What captured everyone's hearts? And how did they become you know, the best of the industry? Think about those things and think about how you can make them even better going forward. Mm -hmm.